Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs. And I'm Cody Sims. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. We appreciate you tuning in, sharing this episode, and if you feel like it, leaving us a review to help more people find out about us so they can figure out where they fit in addressing the problem of climate change. Today's guest is Lauren Sauls, co-founder and CEO of Sealed, which modernizes houses with the latest HVAC, weatherproofing, and smart home technology, and covers the upfront cost to homeowners of doing so. Home efficiency and electrification are a critical front for combating climate change. Incentives for residential heat pump installation are one of the big winners of the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, and the often overlooked but critical steps of weatherizing homes via better insulation and sealing is also key to reducing energy consumption. I was looking forward to talking with Lauren at Sealed, as they have been understanding consumer motivations for home efficiency upgrades for nearly a decade. They recently announced a Series B round of funding that includes the likes of Fifth Wall Climate Tech, Robert Downey Jr.'s Footprint Coalition, City Rock Venture Partners, Cyrus Capital, and Keyframe Capital to help set them up for continued growth. They've learned what consumers care about, what consumers are concerned about, and what triggers them to invest significant capital into updating or upgrading their home's heating and cooling infrastructure. And no surprise, climate change and emissions reduction still does not rate as a top motivator. So what does? And are we at the point where these lower emission technologies are just generally better for home heating and cooling? Spoiler alert, the answer is yes. We have a great chat about how Lauren came to work on the problem of home efficiency updates, what she's learned along the way, how they assess a home's need sealed, and how this compares to the normal way of doing things, the innovative model they have for helping consumers finance projects via energy cost savings, how they work with contractors, and how the Inflation Reduction Act promises to accelerate this space even more in the coming years. And most importantly, we hear from her on how to reach consumers and what their motivations are. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here today, Cody. Well, I can't wait to hear what you're building at Sealed. I have a confession to make myself, which is I went through an entire home energy retrofit about a year and a half ago. So I maybe know enough to be dangerous here. I would love to hear about your experience. Oh, sure. Yeah, we can we can we can turn the mic around for sure. But, you know, maybe first start with how you got into this space. You know, you've been building this company now for almost a decade. I'm sure it's the entire world of home energy efficiency has changed dramatically. So taking us back to 2013 when you were starting Sealed, what prompted you to dive in in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll say I kind of fell into the climate space. I was kind of an accident almost. I had left my job at McKinsey and I was meeting different startup founders or people in the startup ecosystem in New York. And I quickly realized why most startups fail. You know, typically, you know, they lack the right person or the right person with the right idea or the market's not big enough. And then I ended up meeting my now co-founder, Andy Frank, and that was back in 2013. And at the time, I didn't know very much about the energy markets, energy efficiency, climate generally. You know, I've always 
liked the environment and kind of was always a vegetarian and didn't like to, you know, use too much carbon. But I really, it wasn't really a big focus or passion of mine. When I ended up meeting Andy, and that's when I first started to learn about, in particular, the energy efficiency market. And what really struck me that was pretty wild, and then this had struck Andy as well, is that homes contribute to around 20% of greenhouse gas emissions in the US. And the hardware already exists to decarbonize homes. And it's hardware that's extremely effective in terms of ROI, in terms of solving a clear customer pain point, and it's good for the environment, and saw really low customer adoption. And so that really intrigued me. But I'll say it's not like I have a long you know, history and climate or energy efficiency, I kind of fell into it by accident. I was so intrigued with this problem that I decided I wanted to dedicate the next step in my career to it. What did the accidental falling into it entail? I met Andy. Okay. So unpack that for us a little bit more. Yeah. I, I, you know, I had tried a variety of things over the course of my very short career at that point. I had a lot of internships and different types of jobs and everything I kind of did. I knew that I really wasn't meant to be doing that. And so I thought the next thing is like, maybe I'm meant to be an entrepreneur or work for an early stage company. It's kind of the next thing I was going to try. And I had a mentor at McKinsey who kind of encouraged me to go down that that route. And I went on AngelS and I was talking to all types of people with all different types of ideas, you know, in e-commerce or construction and all these different fields. And then actually Andy was the only person I met who was in what at the time was called clean tech. I know now we've rebranded as climate tech, but he was the only person in that space I talked to. And I was intrigued right away and learned as much as I could about the space before deciding to start something with him. And what did those early days of figuring out what the problem might look like that you were interested in solving entail? Also, like the very, very early days, I think actually those are some of the most fun days because, you know, you haven't raised capital yet. There's no pressure. You can really be exploratory about different ideas and strategies. And kind of our original thesis around Sealed is that the key reason why people weren't making these improvements on their own is because they didn't believe that the savings were real. Um, That was our initial thesis. We kind of tried to validate it through surveys, but also we did a lot of talking to people live in Penn Station or Bryant Park. Even got kicked out of Penn Station at one point um, for bothering too many people, and just really talking to a lot of homeowners and a lot of contractors. And that was actually a really fun stage. Now, I'll say the really tough part of Sealed was really the four years following that, which was figuring out a product that solved that problem and seeing if it worked. And I'll say, like, our initial thesis wasn't wrong. It is true that a barrier was that people didn't believe that the energy savings were real from these improvements, but there was two other barriers that we were missing. And so what that meant is we launched a product that was different than our current. We basically launched this guaranteed savings product where our customer still had to do their own financing and find their own contractor. And we basically were almost like an insurance company where we would guarantee a certain amount of energy savings on their bill. I'd also say the problem is that it's not that it failed. It kind of worked. It was a mediocre product. We acquired customers. They liked it, but it wasn't really flying off the shelves. And we didn't feel like it moved the needle on adoption very much. But I'll say those mediocre ideas are the toughest ones to give up on. And how did you decide between whether you should focus on 
consumer education and essentially sales as opposed to contractor education and sales. You know, I, I have to admit, like when I started my home efficiency journey because my hot water heater conked out and I was like, oh, crap, I need a new hot water heater. I called like five plumbers. I knew I, I wanted to do heat pump. I didn't know much about it because I knew I wanted to do it because I work in climate. Right. But I didn't know much about it. I called like five different plumbers and, you know, said I want to do an electric water heater. I didn't even, I didn't even know if I used the word heat pump. And they're like, no, you don't. They're terrible. We'll just do a tankless gas. I'll have it up by four o'clock today. And then I, I finally did some research and I said, no, I want a heat pump. And they didn't like half of them didn't even know what I was talking about, much less how to install it. And this was in 2020 or 2021. So back to my question of, you know, consumer education versus contractor education. How did you decide which pathway to focus on? Or maybe it was both. Initially, we plan to sell our product through contractors. And I'll say again, that's something that like worked kind of both with our guaranteed savings product, but eventually when we rolled out our financial product where we cover the upfront cost and get paid back through the energy reductions over time. So the original choice for both of those was to go through contractors. But what we found is we just didn't have enough control over the message or the design of the projects. And that's how we ended up eventually shifting to direct-to-consumer. But I mean, I think that's a really good point. And I think, you know, if you did the same project a year and a half later, you would run into a very similar problem. And looking back at 2013 or 2014 or 2015, any of those early years, how has the technology changed since you were starting? And also, how has the conversation changed? So... The technology has changed a little bit. So on the weatherization side, air and solution is pretty similar to what it was back in 2013 and 2014. And I think like the spray foam is a little bit better than it was. On the heat pumps side, there's been actually some really big breakthroughs in heat pump technology over the past five years, where it used to be that heat pumps were better suited to warm weather environments. They weren't equipped to deal with truly cold weather. They couldn't deal with, you know, it being zero degrees outside. And that's something that's really changed. And actually, heat pumps are a great option for people in all climates. I see so much misinformation in social media around that issue still. And it's because that used to be the case. And there was a big heat pump push, I don't know, back 30 years ago, and people had a bad experience. And so now everyone thinks that they don't work well when it's a different type of heat pump that you're installing these days. So yes, there's a lot of misinformation about that out there. And I think kind of, you know, Something you mentioned earlier about like the education hurdle between a customer versus a contractor, it's a similar battle, except for I'll say that on the contractor side, people like to install what they're used to installing because that's how they they train. That's what they're most comfortable with. They know the equipment well. They have relationships with different equipment suppliers, and it can be very sticky and difficult to get people to convert from one technology to another. And that's why, you know, when a typical homeowner calls up their local contractor when their current heating system breaks, exactly what you said, they're like, oh, I'll just get you the newer version of what you ever, whatever you currently have. And I think that's very unfortunate. And I think that's not very good for the climate because, you know, every year heating systems are breaking or as you're seeing in places like Northern California or the Pacific Northwest where people who didn't have the AC before are now getting AC and they're not getting heat pumps. And I think that's a really big problem. What are the key home upgrades you do with Sealed today? So maybe let's let's fast forward to where you are now and maybe what is Sealed and what are you focused on helping drive conversion of? 
Yeah. So we're focused on making it easy and affordable for people to decarbonize their homes. But let me tell you that consumers don't think about decarbonizing their homes. They think about making their homes more comfortable, more efficient, healthier, more convenient. Those are the things that customers care about. And therefore, those are the things that Seal cares about. The types of hardware that we are typically installing, some combination of weatherization and HVAC upgrades. So air sealing insulation, that's kind of like bread and butter. Everyone needs air sealing and insulation if they haven't had it professionally installed in the past decade. And then some people, if you have an aging heating or cooling system, we typically recommend getting a heat pump. But we didn't start doing that until around, I think it was like in early 2020, we started selling heat pumps because we also had misconceptions about the technology from back when we were doing our original research back in 2013. And then after doing a lot of research, we said this is a technology that we can stand behind. But like, let me tell you, like, people shouldn't get a heat pump if their homes are not already weatherized. And I think this is like a big mistake that people are doing that today. But I think a big driver behind that is because it's typically a different contractor that's doing weatherization versus installing a heat pump. And it can be very overwhelming for a homeowner to cobble together two or sometimes three different contractors are needed to get everything done. And that's why most people end up doing nothing where they just end up replacing their old gas furnace. And how do you help people find the balance of what order in which they should do these things? And if you look at the envelope of the house today or the infrastructure of the house today beyond the hardware, right? So you look at the the ductwork or you look at the windows or you look at, at some of these other aspects of the house that are really important, but can get really expensive really fast. How do you help people make the right decisions on structuring a project that may be a multi-year project to tackle? So the most important thing is to understand the most important things to the customer. So what is really bothering them? Is it that the master bedroom is freezing during the winter? Is it that their heating system is making noise at night and it's 30 years old and could die at any point? It's really about learning what's most important to the customer. But I'll say, you know, agnostic of any information that their heating system is about to break, we almost always recommend doing weatherization before getting a heat pump. Mainly because, one, like you'll have to buy a bigger, more expensive heat pump if your home isn't weatherized to heat the same amount of conditioned space. And also, you know, if you get a heat pump and your home isn't weatherized, it can kind of exacerbate some of the comfort issues that you're experiencing. So that's what we tend to recommend. But like really, like if, if it's time for someone to get their heating system replaced, we still recommend overall for them to do everything at once. It's also something like insulation air sealing, that stuff is very, very high ROI on its face. You know, typically that you know, is paying back pretty quickly. And so we just recommend everyone do everything at one time. When we did our project, we ended up biting off a huge project. We ended up doing ductwork and insulation and the heat pump. And the reason for that was we wanted to bury the ductwork under the insulation so that it stays properly insulated year round. But it was really interesting because my contractor is great. He was a highly recommended if you're in Southern California, they're called the building doctors. They do the, the full end to end home efficiency work and specifically focus on the climate aspects of the installation of these projects. But, you know, I, I was trying to ask him around payback period. And, you know, he said, look, I'm going to be honest with you. You're in Southern California. The biggest bang for the buck you're getting on payback 
is the insulation work we're doing. It's not the heat pump work we're doing. It's not the duct work we're doing. That all is making everything more climate friendly and reducing your, you know, your gas footprint. And you're going to get efficiency gains from it. But your insulation was so terrible that like this is actually where you're going to see the biggest bang for your buck. And that's actually the lowest cost part of the whole project. So like that to me kind of blew my mind. And I'm guessing a lot of people you talk to don't necessarily think about these really low tech changes that are really important for their homes. Yes. And by the way, when people are uncomfortable in their home, everyone thinks they need new windows. And that's one of the lowest ROI things you can do from an energy savings perspective. It can be a very high ROI from an aesthetics point of view. Right? I'm not going to argue with new windows can look very beautiful. But yes, insulation, air sealing, you know, even living in somewhere like Southern California, where the weather is not that extreme, really is very high ROI both from a financial point of view, but also from a quality of life point of view. And the thing is, like, when you're thinking about something like a heat pump or any kind of HVAC system, like, its fundamental purpose is to heat and cool your home. And sometimes that means that, you know, if you're installing a gas furnace, you wouldn't be like, what's the payback on this, right? You just need it fundamentally to heat your home. And so, you know, depending on the climate, depending on whether someone's coming off using gas or oil, like it could take a really long time for a heat pump to pay back if you really thought about it in that lens. Yeah, I also felt like to some extent it was future proofing the technology of my home, meaning if I think about the long term equity value of my home, it's probably boosting that because now my home has the technology that all new homes are going to be built with going forward, as opposed to using legacy 20th century technology. Yes. And, you know, we see this in the Northeast where there's still millions of homes that are heated with oil or propane. It's getting much more difficult to sell your home if you heat with oil or propane or even have an oil tank buried somewhere on your property. You know, and I guess you probably don't see this so much in Southern California, but here in the Northeast, there's literally oil trucks that go around and pump oil into your basement. That's the way that it works. And sometimes people run out of oil. So it didn't get refilled quickly enough and it was really cold. And think about what an antiquated way that is to heat your home. And the other thing too, which most people don't think too much about with oil and, and gas heating is it's there's literally combustion, right? You're starting a fire in your home and then like blowing it around your home. And I just don't think it's as clean or as healthy as a heat pump, for example, which is just moving the heat around the home. How would you rate in general from a consumer perspective the value props kind of, I, I see the, you know, you, we've talked about three so far. We've talked about climate and emissions. We've talked about energy savings. And I guess we've talked about four, comfort. And we've talked about now health. If there is such thing as the average consumer, which of those currently are most popular? And do you see one changing in terms of its importance at a faster rate than others? Well, I'll be honest with you. I'll put climate at the bottom. And that is not the primary motivating force for our customers, at least, where we're operating. I think that's a good thing because I never like to count on people's altruism or care for the climate to drive major purchasing decisions for things that are very expensive. I think people actually put like, I think like convenience and quality of life at the top. One thing that people don't talk about with heat pumps is how quiet they are. It makes the same amount of sound as your refrigerator. Basically, you can think about the heat pump as basically working like a large refrigerator, basically. And that's like the number one thing we hear from our customers is like, it's so quiet and I have so much control per room. Those are the two things that people really talk about. 
I definitely think about the heat pump as being a higher end technology. You know, this is how the Met is heated and cooled. This is how Buckingham Palace is heated and cooled. It really is high end technology. And it's great that it's become more accessible and affordable over like the past five, 10 years for homeowners. But it's because like of those quality of life things that are really important to people. I'll say there's plenty of our customers who probably don't even believe or care about climate change at all. How do you assess what makes a good home or a bad home for for sealed in particular in terms of you being the appropriate service provider for them? Mm-hmm. So one, people need to have a problem, right? If, if you're saying that my home is super comfortable and my heating system, my heating systems are like brand new, but I'm just interested in reducing my carbon footprint. That's not really a great customer for sealed or really like any other contractor. Like you should have a problem that you're looking to solve. Also, like our sweet spot for homes are homes built before 2000, before there was a lot of kind of building regulations around this type of stuff. And, you know, single family homeowners is who we're primarily working with as well. But, you know, I think that because we're custom designing scopes for each home, usually we can find something to do for most homes that's going to benefit them. And talk to me about that process. Like, I know when when I did it, we had someone come into our house, they did blower tests, they did infrared readings of our home, et cetera. Like, is all of that required today? Or can you do most things remotely through software? Our process is very different. Like, I'll say, like, back in the day, we did all the things you're talking about, the infrared cameras, like through the phone, the blower drawer tests, all that stuff. And it was super time consuming and people had to take time off from work. And I think the big breakthrough we had was back in 2018, where we said, we're going to do all this stuff over the phone and through technology. And so actually our process is, you know, filling out some stuff online, taking photos of your home, and then we're evaluating those. And then we're presenting someone with a proposal, but everything's done online. We do send a contractor out before the actual installation to make sure there's nothing that we missed or making sure there's no mold or asbestos problems, but we're not doing kind of your classic free home energy audit stuff that people have been around the industry for a while might be familiar with. And are, does that mean the homeowners crawling through the attic, taking pictures of their insulation and ductwork in order to get a quote from you? No, it, it doesn't have to be that in depth. Like you can just, you know, climb up the ladder and take a, a couple of photos with your phone. You don't actually have to crawl around. The other thing is that, you know, every home is a little bit unique. But there's definitely like different archetypes that homes fall under and different types of work that people have had done. And depending on the year, we can make a pretty educated guess on what it's going to look like up there. And then again, we have that step before the actual installation to make sure that we're not wrong about it. But in the vast majority of cases, you know, we've accurately scoped without ever setting foot in your home. And so then you give them a, a, a loose project proposal and then have someone come actually to the home to kind of talk the customer through questions and then verify the proposal. Is that, does that, I'll say we give a pretty specific project proposal and then someone comes out to verify. And the other thing, then this is kind of, you know, we're just kind of looking for, you know, pieces of the puzzle and there's different ways that we get it. So one way is through photos. We're also collecting people's energy usage. And based on different patterns that we see in their historical energy usage, we can help diagnose some of the problems they're experiencing as well. But the biggest piece of information we get is just from talking to the customers. What problems are you having? So this is like a very classic problem is the master bedroom is really cold during the winter. And the most typical reason for this is a lot of master bedrooms sit over the garage. 
and the garage ceiling is uninsulated. Now that's just an example of, you know, a common problem that we can diagnose without having to someone to take a picture of what their garage ceiling looks like. Sounds like I'm starting to understand how the name of the company came about. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and then also we are able to get sealed.com. So I think that would be a tougher thing to get these days. But back in actually 2014 is when we bought the domain. That's awesome. We're going to take a short break right now so our partner Yin can share more about the MCJ membership option. Hey folks, Yin here, a partner at MCJ Collective. Want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have since then grown to 2,000 members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with differing backgrounds and perspectives. And while those perspectives are different, what we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, nonprofits have been established, a bunch of hiring has been done, many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. So whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, back to the show. Maybe walk us through then the financing model that you have, which I find incredibly unique in terms of how you're enabling customers and contractors to pay for the work that is being done. And it seems like it creates really good alignment between all the parties involved. I'll say the financing piece is kind of at the heart of what we do, because if you think about it, a customer has to trust us at a very deep level to design a scope for them and choose a contractor to do a really expensive project with them. And the reason why they trust us is because we're using our capital to cover the upfront cost and we only get paid back based on the performance of the work that's being done. And so there's this deep alignment of interest for us to find the best contractors, to put the best equipment in, and have a scope that's really designed for that particular customer. And the other thing is, you know, energy savings and single family homes, it's actually very difficult to predict that on an individual basis. But we have the advantage, like we compare you with all of your neighbors, right? And we're holding a portfolio of homes and we can feel very confident in the accuracy of our predictions over a portfolio. Kind of like an insurance type model. Maybe talk us through how the financing model then works for you all. Yeah, so we look at an individual home. We're getting the energy usage history. And then we're, you know, comparing it to thousands of homes that are similar to that home. And through that, you know, we're putting in the different types of improvements that we're recommending. And then we can figure out how much energy someone's going to be saving, you know, over the course of several years. And then that's how we're able to cover the upfront cost. And like, if you can think about it, if you, we'll just put some dollar examples on it. It actually would be like in kilowatt hours, but say, say someone's, you know, using 100 kilowatt hours a month before, and now they're using 80 kilowatt hours. You know, they're paying for the 80 kilowatt hours to their utility, and then they pay seal the 20 kilowatt hour difference. And then, you know, on the flip side, right, like, let's say the product is not performing that well. And they're using 95 kilowatt hours versus 100, sealed only gets five kilowatt hours of revenue. 
are you actually paying the utility bill and and taking the difference out for the consumer or is it just a you know roughly your bills are reducing by x and so we're going to assume your monthly payment is going to be roughly x and you know so that you, it feels net to you it feels net equal to you oh so customers are still paying their utility bill directly in a separate bill to sealed but we're not guessing on what their utility bills like every month we're looking at their metered energy usage and casting the savings that way it's not an estimate because then it really wouldn't be performance based if we just said you're supposed to save approximately this much you know it might as well be a loan at at, at that point so their sealed payment may fluctuate month to month based on the utility bill where you're truly just trying to charge them the difference in their prior savings or their their prior bill versus the the savings that they have post project exactly and those are have to be multi-decade sort of payback periods i'm guessing is that right so yeah our default contract length is 20 years are you familiar with the solar ppa I am loosely, but explain it for everybody. Just okay. You know, so doesn't matter if I am. <laughs> yeah. So I think the solar space is a really interesting parallel to energy efficiency and electrification because solar panels are also not a new technology, but they really struggled with customer adoption. And what really helped things take off is that kind of in like the late two thousands, Solar City and Sunrun came out with these like residential solar PPAs where. They said, like, you don't have to trust that these solar panels are going to generate electricity on your rooftop. Instead, you can just purchase electricity from the solar panels that we're going to pay to install. And, you know, it's going to be at a lower rate than what your utility is charging you. And so I think we're very fortunate that the solar PPA came before us because the financial markets are already familiar with kind of this performance-based structure on top of consumer credit risk. And like the solar PPA market, then I assume, you know, if you move or sell the house before you've paid off that project, you know, you're still responsible for that loan. Presumably, most people are going to then take the proceeds from their house and pay off the loan yeah. with that house. That's Is what that most correct? people do. You can also transfer it to the new homeowner or you can keep it yourselves and it, you know, switches to a fixed monthly payment. There's a variety of options, but most people, as you said, just kind of use equity in their home to prepay us. I'm curious if you all have looked at all into um, uh, PACE type financing where you can actually try to finance through tax property tax credits so that the the cost actually stays with the property as opposed to with the individual's credit. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with PACE. I think it's, you know, run into some regulatory things. It's kind of like state by state. And I think like different target market than we have. It would be difficult to pair that with performance-based financing, which is kind of the bread and butter of what we do. We're pretty focused on that. That makes sense. And then talk about how you're actually acquiring customers. Like what are, are people going online and searching for my master bedroom is too cold? Like what are the, how are they finding you versus just going to Yelp or Angie's list or something and finding an HVAC contractor? Yeah. So I'll say like there's two types of all segment customers into two types. One type is that like they have a problem and they have some kind of idea of what the solution is and like they're the ones who are in google search right searching for you know i need a new heating system or i need insulation right and we'll pop up we have a lot of content on our websites we tend to rank pretty well for those search terms and then a second category of customers who kind of like you know they have a problem but it's not like kind of their top five things that they're worried about and they really have no idea what the solutions are and those are people we're targeting by, you know, getting out in front of them through, you know, YouTube videos or Instagram or 
we have a lot of great partnerships with utilities who are sending emails kind of describing what we do. And then, you know, at this point too, like we have, you know, higher concentrations in certain neighborhoods. A lot of people will hear about us from their neighbor or a family member. So that's on the consumer side. And then on the contractor side, most of these contractors today are, you know, having to I actually maybe walk me through how the contractor market works. Are most contractors, you know, I think of a plumber as, you know, you look them up on Yelp and you find a plumber, but are, you know, HVAC installers different than the people who, if you are searching on Yelp for HVAC, someone comes to your house, are they basically a salesperson and then they then work with subcontractors to do the installation work? Like what does that market look like today? That's a great question. So Typically for HVAC and insulation, it, you know, there's like these smaller local contractors who both have like install crews and they have salespeople or a lot of times they call them assessors who are coming out to the home and doing this free home energy audit, like the way you describe with the blower drawer and the infrared camera. So it's the same company that does both in most cases. But I'll say like contractors hear about us. Honestly, through a lot of the same channels that consumers hear about us because contractors are also consumers. And then a lot of people end up being interested in working or partnering with us. And then also we're doing our own research on who the top contractors in the area are. And we kind of, you know, hear that through word of mouth. We're also looking at different review sites. We're talking to customers who have had this work done. But, you know, honestly, it's, it's a very similar process to consumers. And so then if they start working with you a lot, then can kind of get rid of that assessor side of the business that they do and just basically use you for all their legion? Is that the is that the idea? Correct. And I'll say most of our contractor partners, they still, you know, get a fair amount of their own business, especially because especially contractors, they don't have, you know, whole sales and marketing operations, typically, or if they do, it's, it's very small. And so most contractors are getting most of their customers through word of mouth or referrals. So that still remains an element of their business. But what SEAL does is kind of make it easy for them to expand their business and make it bigger. I'll say especially during a lot of contractors have like very seasonal businesses and they typically have, you know, a few months during like the spring or fall that are just really tough. And that's where SEAL can really come in and help because we have pretty consistent pipeline throughout the year. So, you know, if, if I'm a contractor, I'm thinking, oh, this company is reaching out to me. And what I'm seeing is, A, they have... A really professional marketing presence and know how to acquire customers and B, they've got this interesting like way of financing the work that I otherwise don't have to do. And so I have to help all my customers think about how they're going to use a HELOC or they're going to go get a bank loan or do some other thing to to finance the project that they're trying to do, whereas Sealed is bringing that to the table for me. Is that is that correct? Yes. And then also a big part of the value prop is they know that if they're sending someone to the home, it's extremely likely that that will turn into paid work for them. Versus, you know, I don't know what the typical close rate are for assessors, but I think, you know, I don't know, they're probably going out to like, you know, five or six homes and then one of them is going to turn into project versus most sealed projects that get to the stage where we're sending out an installer to check it out before the installation. The likelihood of that becoming a project are extremely high. And then what's what's your role in validating the quality of said contractor? Because your brand is, you know, sitting across all these folks, but you don't have control over the work that they're doing. That's correct. And I'll say that's one of the biggest benefits of working with field. So a homeowner, they're going to have no idea if a heat pump has been correctly installed or 
even if the entire scope of work has actually been completed, people just have no idea or they won't know until they have a problem later, basically. And so what SEAL does is we carefully verify that everything has been done according to sealed standards. We're reviewing photos of every single part of the project. And, you know, we have our engine or we need these, these photos and we need to review them before we pay the installer. And we're experts at this stuff. And so there's a very high likelihood that the project will be done correctly, just because even, you know, contractors know that we're going to be reviewing things kind of line by line. And then, you know, we'll send people back out if we're not satisfied with the quality of the work. And then, you know, shifting a little bit to your own operations and financing, then are you all needing to have access, access, and we could talk about the funding you've raised and all that, but are you also needing access to a fairly significant line of credit in order to pay the contractors up front, but then not collect cash from the consumers for a, you know, 20 year period? Yeah. So we leverage that project finance to finance the projects and we use our equity capital to fund the operations and growth of the company. And that's a model that's worked really well for us because, you know, debt capital of a, you know, high credit worthy portfolio is a lot less expensive for us than, you know, venture capital that has a very high expectation of what their returns are going to be. Yeah. Has the, the interest rates shifting been difficult for the business so far? I'll say like, you know, we built the business when there were higher interest rates than what we have today. So our business continues to do very, very well. Great. And let's talk about how the, you know, can't talk about heat pumps and home efficiency without talking about the Inflation Reduction Act at this point. So, you know, how do you expect the new law as it is now to benefit your business? I couldn't be more excited about the Inflation Reduction Act. And it was such a great summer surprise because, you know, us, like everyone else, did not see it coming. So there's $9 billion of incentives for electrification and energy efficiency. And that doesn't include, you know, this $2,000 annual recurring tax credit for these types of improvements. So I'll say I'm excited about it for a variety of reasons. I think the number one reason I'm excited, and this seems to be a little bit of a, might be a little bit of a strange thing, but most people don't know what heat pumps and insulation are. And I think that one of the biggest risks to making progress on the climate side of things for single family homes is everyone's going to get ACs and they're not going to get heat pumps. So I actually think like the awareness, you know, the president right during his press conference when he signed the bill mentioned heat pumps, right? He's talking about weatherization in the state of the union. So those are the really big sea changes for the industry. The other thing that really excited about, I think is the right incentive levels that are going to spur customer adoption, but don't crowd out private market actors and like doesn't lead to the government kind of wasting money. And it's kind of designed in a really smart way. So the homes part of the bill, it's around $4.5 billion. There's higher incentive levels for measures that save more energy. And that's the way that things should be done. It's a truly performance-based program. You get paid higher incentive levels if you're getting paid based on the energy performance. And I couldn't be more excited about it. By you, that means you, the installer? Mm-hmm. Okay. As yeah, and then the basically you're incentivized to do the higher ROI items. And you want to install the most efficient systems versus something that's less efficient. So just to at a high level, you know, there's ongoing tax credits for consumers who have these technologies installed, both at the, I think, a direct pay at the point of installation and then an ongoing tax credit. Is that is that correct? So what I mean by an ongoing tax credit is that there's this, you know, up to two thousand dollar 
tax credit, but it's not one-time use. Every year, you can use it again to get something new. I think that's really smart because this way, there's new technology that comes out that you might want to install that wasn't available the year before. Then you're incentivized. You kind of have this like $2,000 a year annual budget. Because it had been what, like a $500 lifetime credit or something? $300 lifetime or something like that. And I'll say with something like blunt, the kind of level managed with $300 tax credit, like I'll say for companies like ours, it's not even necessarily like worth it to like educate customers or spend that much money educating customers. Like $2,000 is definitely worth spending and investing money and in educating consumers about that. That's great. And so then in addition to the consumer benefit, then there are also benefits that hit the installers that incentivize you to install higher efficiency appliances and, and home home upgrades. Exactly. And then, you know, the other exciting thing about the bill is, you know, I think everyone wanted to make sure that low and middle income customers didn't get left behind because again, like a heat pump is a really expensive technology. It's a higher end technology because of its cost. And there's some very large incentives for electrification, specifically when it comes to low and middle income homeowners. And the whole, I think the whole tax credit for consumers is AGI or aggregate gross income metered, is it not? Meaning it, it'll cap out at a certain amount of income, but for lower, like you said, for lower income Americans, there'll be even more benefit, I believe. Yeah, there'll be even more benefit for low income Americans. Because the thing about, about tax credits, sometimes people, if you have a low income, you'll have a tough time monetizing a $2,000 tax credit. Yeah, makes sense. Talk about geo. So, you know, today you've, you've started mostly in the Northeast. I think you've recently expanded to Chicagoland area. Maybe explain a little bit about how you're how you're approaching market expansion and if there are patterns you're looking for in terms of home types or if it's more of a, just a total addressable market type of expansion path or what else it might be. Yeah. So historically, we operated in New York State for a long time, but even with the New York State, like we kind of initially expanded utility territory. And around 14 months ago, we're still just in New York State. And then since then, we've kind of been expanding throughout the Northeast and also to Chicagoland, as you mentioned. So the thing that we like to see in markets, so we like to see at least one more extreme season. So either a hot summer or a cold winter, which is most of the US, but we do like to see, you know, a time in the year where someone will be uncomfortable if they're home isn't properly insulated. We're also looking at, yeah, the total addressable market, population, density, how easily we can build and install our network there and how quickly. And then we're also looking at things like weather patterns and therefore like what the ROI is like on some of these types of improvements. I'll say that things have changed over the past few years. I, I used to say like, oh, I think we'll be in Canada before we're in, you know, Washington State or like Northern California, but now these are all places where people are getting air conditioning. So I think that we need to be in those geos to say, hey, like you should get a heat pump and not just get air conditioning. That's interesting. So actually, let me let me click into that. Are you seeing more of your customers generally those who are ready to add an AC for the first time or those who are retrofitting their existing equipment? We see both, but we've seen more customers of late of people wanting to get AC for the first time. And we won't get people AC for the first time if they're not getting a heat pump. That's not a right. service. Well, yeah, 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 no, that's, that's great. Yeah. But that's a, that's, you know, yet another customer acquisition funnel, I guess, for you all to optimize, right? Which is... It is definitely making sure that we're, you know, serving those people 
correctly and have an offering that's attractive for people who are primarily motivated for getting air conditioning for the first time. And how are you, you know, just on the tech side of things, we haven't talked about ducted versus ductless. Like, are you, you do both. What's been the general consumer appetite and the, how people make the, the choice? Does it depend on just if they have existing duct work or not for the most part? It typically is like, do they have existing duct work or not that we're going to plug into? That's like the main decision. And then like looking at cost, you know, relative to that. But that's the main driving factor. Ductless, I assume, is cheaper generally? Yes, generally. Yeah, because I mean, like, ductwork can be pretty expensive, you know, even like retrofitting it. But, you know, if you don't already have it, and also if you don't already have like a ductless system, like people are accustomed to making more adjustments per room. Maybe explain what a ductless system is for those who aren't familiar with it. Oh, yeah. So I'm trying to think. So like, let me start with like a ducted system first, right? There'll be like these like ducts that are going through your ceilings and your walls that are kind of transferring like the air throughout your house and it's typically controlled by a, a centralized system and then a ductless system and when he pumps so you're talking about like ductless mini splits you have kind of like these room by room like mini units that you're putting on your wall that you're kind of typically like you know controlling on a more micro level i feel like i'm most familiar you know having seen those maybe i, I think of those as like oh this is like a hotel little thing that sits on the wall in a hotel right yeah, exactly. Or honestly, if you're going to Europe, as recently in Israel, very common systems to see there. And then on the insulation side of things, like what are the most common changes people need to make with insulation? Yeah, people need insulation in their attic. And that's like the biggest bang for your buck. That's where most the air is escaping. Now, air sealing needs to be paired with the insulation. A very common problem that people have is a lot of people have high hats or recessed lighting, which looks beautiful, but typically it's leaking air into your attic. And so you have to go into the attic and seal around the gaps around all of those lights that you have in your ceiling. And then you insulate on top of it. And then maybe explain for people just what air sealing is. Oh, air sealing. I think about like putting on a raincoat right? It kind of like blocks out like, you know, the water from getting in, but a raincoat by itself doesn't keep you warm, right? Which is why you kind of put in the insulation. It's like the down in your jacket. That would be the equivalent of insulation. Well, Lauren, what didn't I ask? We've covered everything from the consumer behavior side of things to the changing landscape over the last decade to, you know, how your business works to, what are the different pieces of adjustments people should be making in their homes to how you work with contractors, to how you finance everything. So hopefully we've covered a lot of it, but I'm sure we didn't cover everything. No, oh, we covered a lot of it. I think, you know, one thing I would want, you know, you or, you know, you, the listeners to take away from this podcast is that with homes making up 20% of greenhouse gases in the U.S., that the hardware already exists to solve the problem. So it's really about coming up with ways of delivering this hardware to consumers that resonates with them. And that's not messages of saving the planet or saving energy or saving money. And I think that's one of the bigger breakthroughs that we've had with Sealed over the course of the past, you know, nine, 10 years. And while I think it's, you know, awesome that the message around climate has changed and everyone wants to work in climate tech now and everyone wants to invest in climate tech, but not losing sight that consumers still don't care that much about the climate. Somewhat depressing, but also realistic, <laughs> which is important when we're building a business. 
Well, for those who are listening, who are intrigued by what you're doing, A, what should potential customers do to learn more? And B, for folks who maybe say, hey, I actually want to try to work on this problem with you, where are you looking for help right now? Yeah, well, for any potential customers, I would just go to seal.com and take a look at some of the articles we have on our website, or you can schedule a time to speak to one of our team members. And then for people interested in working at Seal, you can go to seal.com slash jobs, and we have a variety of job openings available. And same with, I guess, if there are any contractors listening, where where should they yeah, go? Yeah, also, there's also a spot on our website for contractors as well. Great. Lauren, I so appreciate you taking the time to join us today, and I learned a ton. It was great talking today. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. To do this, we focus on three main pillars. Content, like this podcast and our weekly newsletter. Capital, to fund companies that are working to address climate change and our member community to bring people together, as Yen described earlier. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at www.mcjcollective.com. And if you have guest suggestions, feel free to let us know on Twitter at MCJPod. Thanks, and see you next episode.